Hello, this is Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics uh, uh, at the Wharton School. And on this week's uh, highlights of our Wharton Moneyball show, we talk about this week in sports and college football in the NFL. We talk a lot about uh, C.J. Stroud's amazing start to this, uh, his rookie campaign and how some of the top quarterbacks are all kind of linked by the Shanahan coaching tree. Lots of other great stuff in there. Check it out on Wharton Moneyball. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this week with the whole crew. Shane Jensen is here from way out of town joining us late in the evening. Appreciate that. Eric Bradlow. From his office in Huntsman Hall at the Wharton School. And Adi Weiner, visiting family in the Northeast where it's already dark over there. But we're all in here together on Zoom as we usually are these days, Tuesday afternoon, as we usually record these days. Show will go up Wednesday morning, tomorrow morning on SiriusXM. Be replayed a few times on business radio. We'll also get the podcast up tomorrow. You guys want to question us, suggest something for us? Please feel free. Hit us up at W Moneyball on Twitter is probably the easiest way to catch us at W Moneyball on Twitter. And uh, we follow all our guests up there. We'd love to hear from you guys. Guys, we've got an interview in the second half. We're going to talk college football, college football recruiting. And uh, we've got open lines here in the first half. Maybe let's briefly touch on college football. This is really coming down to the end. I think, uh, we, well, we got one of the biggest games of the year, Michigan-Ohio State-Ohio State at Michigan. The Bradlow family will be in attendance, which is mighty exciting, one of the greatest rivalries in sport. The Wolverines are three-and-a-half-point favorites there. They are the winners. It's pretty much, a, it is a national quarterfinal. The winner of that is going to win, is going to beat Iowa in the Big Ten Championship and have a place in the playoffs. The loser is a long shot to make it in. There's scenarios in which they might, but, it's a long shot if they lose this. So it's a big game. Great fun. Um, I think Ohio State, by the way, has a better shot as a loser to make it in than Michigan uh, does. I think with all the Harbaugh stuff going on and the, you know, either way. And and Ohio State now is higher ranked and just, you know, the prior beliefs. But either way, I agree with you. It's it's a, it's a I love the framing. It is a quarterfinal game. Well, they've also got a better win. They both beat Penn State, but Michigan kind of doesn't have anything else. Ohio State beat Notre Dame. And that, at least at the time, seemed like a real good win. So they've got that advantage as well. I agree with you. They have a better chance if they're the loser. Um, a simple way to think about the college football landscape right now is that we have eight teams left, I'd say. Louisville is a ninth, but they're, they're I mean, they would need a real meltdown to make it in. Eight teams left. Of those eight, there are three guaranteed losses among them. So, like this weekend, Ohio State and Michigan are play, playing each other. Oregon and um Washington are going to play each other and Georgia and Alabama. So there will be three losses among those eight, but if that's all that happens, we've got five teams still standing for four spots. And that's uh, why. Uh, no, well, well, you don't count what, let's say Alabama beats Georgia. Georgia's still standing. I know. Even then it's not completely done. No, and right. you know, my doomsday, that's what I'm hoping for, right? <laughs> not that I have any love for Nick Saban, but at all. But I am hoping that Alabama beats Georgia and to see if they're going to put in two SEC teams. 
Well, it, it'll that they'd be tempted because they're two time defending champ and they've looked pretty much tops all year. Well, not all year, but they're looking tops here at the end. We we're going to talk in the second half of the show about the strength of their roster. So that would be interesting. And it's not a long shot. I think the, the line people are anticipating the line being three or four points there. It's a doable thing. Alabama, you know, probably has an axe to grind after a couple of years not getting it done. So that all um, couldn't come to pass, Eric. There's going to be plenty of room for drama between now and then. In fact, there's only a narrow window for no drama. There's only a, you need just the right thing to happen. Those three losses happen. Maybe either Texas or Florida State lose, and you've got things easy. Or Florida State doesn't lose. Washington doesn't lose. Georgia doesn't lose. You've got four undefeateds. And that's going to be real simple if it's four undefeateds. But let's let that sit. We've got other things to talk about. We've got more coming up down the road. Two other quick notes, maybe three other quick notes. Well, one nice news here I think I want to share. In the world of consolidation and NIL and transfer and people gnashing their teeth at all these things, a nice thing happened this week. Washington, as everyone knows, is going to the Big Ten with UCLA, Oregon, USC. Beginning next year, that means the Apple Cup is coming to an end unless they do something about it. The Apple Cup is the Washington Washington, Washington State rivalry playing this weekend. They just announced that they're going five more years of the Apple Cup. Why end? You don't have to end just because you're moving to another conference. You can have a non-conference rivalry. They respect the rivalry. They're going to go at least another five years. I think it's a fantastic idea. I wish more teams did this kind of thing. Maybe we'll see more of it. Maybe maybe it kind of goes hand in hand with some consolidation. Anyway, I thought it was worth some attention. Adi's got some Ivy League news for us. I do have some Ivy League news, not because any of you really care too much about the Ivy League, um, although Yale beat Harvard, just throw that out, Harvard guys, um, and the Yale did, we all want to share the championship. Um, what's interesting is that about four or five years ago, I did this recruiting model, um, which we're actually going to talk about in our second half. And what I noticed about the Ivy League is that they made this monumental shift in their recruiting, where all of a sudden they're recruiting in small numbers and not in particularly powerful numbers, but potential NFL players, which they never used to do. And one team in particular was standing out as being the best and one at the worst. And the best one was Yale, which was averaging uh, recruiting classes way better than all the others with Harvard and Princeton a little bit behind and Dartmouth by far like the last place. And I just want to point out that this model that I that kind of came up with about four or five years ago has seen Yale win a share or all the title basically five times in the last six years. So it matters. And, but interestingly enough, Dartmouth consistently is, is up there playing with the big, the big teams and win I want to share this year. And there's a mystery how Dartmouth does this because their recruit class looks terrible relative to Yale's. Well, I I just give me some numbers here. How many, how many players from these teams go to the NFL? Are we talking about like, oh, five versus three? Or are we talking about one versus zero? Oh, well, okay. The, the, the historical number, the expected number historically was, was essentially zero. Whether one made it or not, that was just random variation. The expected number was basically zero. The Yale number is probably expected. You know, this is just a draft. So you're never going to see these guys actually play too much. The Yale number is probably up to about three now, an expected number. I don't know what actually is happening, but they're expected to end. And, uh, and and Dartmouth still is around a half, right, or less. Um, so uh, Dartmouth, Brown, and Columbia kind of sit. Well, it's really Dartmouth, Brown, and Cornell sit at the bottom. Columbia and Penn in the middle. And the top three is Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Uh, but, no, these are not like Alabama, Georgia. <laughs> no, 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 not even. And it's like three-star recruits tops. 
Well, the quarterback who just won last night played for both Alabama and Oklahoma manages to what we have the longest streak of winning against teams with winning records in the NFL history, excluding postseason. Regular but, season record. Exactly. Well, of course, uh, Penn has a two-time Super Bowl winning player who caught a big pass last night, Justin Watson. That's right. He was a draft, maybe a fifth round draft pick. Is that right? Maybe four. Harvard five, has very good the, fifth round. Fifth round. Harvard has one of the most exciting football players of the last twenty years, Ryan Fitzpatrick. That's right, Magic. There you go, Fitzmagic. Um, guys, Yale, we'll uh, Audie Yale has. I'm going to suggest that we set. <laughs> Ivy, I'm, I'm going to suggest that we set Ivy League football aside and talk about the NFL. Any observations? We are past the halfway point now. Eagles with a big win against the Chiefs. Arguably, the Chiefs should have gotten it done last night. What about Andy Reid? He, the god of NFL coaching, punting from the other team's forty in the fourth quarter. Any, anyway, about the game or other places. What are your observations on the NFL right now? Can I just point about that decision? I mean, I've been running these fourth down models and they have giant spikes of green, meaning go for it in the middle of the field. And I was shocked that they punted at that point. Really shocked because it just seems like an obvious no brainer. You go for it there. It it just doesn't cost you anything. And sure enough, they punted and ended up maybe, what, 10 yards further or 15 yards further than they were. Makes just no probabilistic sense. Yeah, I think the part that always surprises me, Adi, is near the end of games when a team is up by like four or five points and they choose to punt from like the 40 when, you know, the other team's willing to give you that first 20 yards anyway. So Mm -hmm. those extra yards are almost worthless. Like getting a first down is worth so much. I mean, in many cases, it ends the game. But even like, oh, they're starting at the 15 instead of the 30. So what? You know, it, that, that, those yards just aren't that valuable at that. Again, given you're up more than three at that part of the game. Yeah, no, and I think that's a great point that people don't really think about is uh, behind fourth down decisions in general is, you know, you're by punching, you're trying to play a field position game. But like if you're already like on their the opponent's side of the ball to actually punt it and make it make it a value added to kind of, you know, print them deep is actually pretty hard play to pull off in this in today's NFL. So, yeah, it, I think it's kind of obvious that they should have gone for it on fourth down there, but, you know. I want to give you an observation that comes from either Eric or Shane. Top three quarterbacks in yards per attempt in the NFL right yeah. now so far, Purdy, Tua, and Stroud. And then observing that all coached by head coaches from the Shanahan tree, Shanahan himself, of course. Yeah. Pretty and it's worth pointing out that, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, there's going to be top three quarterbacks every year, but th- these numbers, this, these yards per attempt numbers are kind of, are, are pretty, they stand out. I mean, I really do think we're seeing in the NFL, like this kind of like this innovative offensive scheming, at least certainly on the part of Mike Shanahan and on the part of Mike McDaniel. Really yeah, how much credit does D'Amico, I, I don't even know what's going on with the with the Texans. D'Amico Ryans is a defensive player, right? I'm assuming he's right. Yeah, and he was a defense. I, I mean, he's not, you know, he, he is from the Shanahan coaching tree. He was the defensive coach for San Francisco for several years before going to Houston. But the, he was the defensive coach, so it's not, yeah, I, you think you know. Got, he, you think he, he got by really, osmosis? I, Did he get by osmosis some of that or, offensive or, or, or coincidence? Or, or just, you know. The great uh, C.J. Stroud question is, you guys remember last year in the last game of the season how we were all lambasting the Texans to yeah, win the game, that right. won and knocked them from the one seed to the two. The counterfactual question everyone asks, I get we get it on our 
Twitter feed at W Moneyball as well is the Texans had lost the game and been number one where they have taken Bryce Young. Yeah, and there's right. no way they wouldn't trade for them to trade CJ Stroud. They would need Bryce Young and three other first round picks right now. Because yeah. um, CJ Stroud, again, as we talked about last week too, I don't know how great he's going to be, but it's hard to imagine a scenario where he's a bust. It's not hard to imagine a scenario right now where Bryce Young could be a Mariota, Jameis Winston. He could end up being just a good backup quarterback in the NFL. C.J. Stroud's a star. I mean, a lot of people want to yeah. argue he's an MVP candidate right now. No, I mean, and I, I, I've had a hard time remembering a, like a rookie quarterback campaign like this. He's a tw- top three quarterback in the NFL right now as That's a absurd. rookie. Is it is it possible that that poor performance in a rookie quarterback is less diagnostic than great performance? Is that possible? I, 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 don't, I, I don't, want don't want to measure performance by just purely wins losses. Because um, there's things that are concerning about Bryce Young. I mean, uh, Shane was the one that put the stats about C.J. Stroud in the rundown. Um, Bryce Young's the opposite. He's got the lowest number of yards per pass attempt in the NFL right now. And so there are many concerning stats. And of course, with okay, motion but, but, tracking you know, data. These are can, quarterback stats technically, but they're team stats realistically, right? And and it's I think it's I think it's harder for a new quarterback to elevate poor surrounding than to be elevated by that surrounding. But I feel like it's a little asymmetric. I feel like I don't want to discount. I mean, one, we no one expected the Texans to be any good. So the fact that Stroud is playing that well cannot be so readily attributed to his surrounding cast. But no one expected the Panthers to be good either, and I'm not ready to dismiss Young. By the way, I have a question no, about yeah, Young. Not- I have a question about Young that I, I haven't watched him play enough this year to know. One of the knocks on him coming in is that he was that he is slight. He's an average-sized guy, like literally like almost an average-sized man playing NFL quarterback. We've seen quarterbacks get knocked out every week this year. Like an unbelievable number of new guys are starting – he hasn't been knocked out yet. Is there something about his st- – is he good at not taking bad hits? Is he good at – or is he more robust than we thought he was? Or is, is there something about his play – I'm now I'm asking, is there a positive feature here that he is less injury-prone, especially than you might have thought given his stature? Yeah, open, keep throwing – keep keep being last in the league in yards per attempt. Throw, throw a bunch of three-yard passes, and I won't get hit either. Okay, okay. Okay. Fine. No, I'm just saying. I, no, what the formula is called the check down, I think. Yeah, okay. the guy, that's, the guy okay. that's the winning formula. Throw, throw 98% of your passes, check downs is like perhaps a little bit easier to stay healthy. But, um, all right. Okay. Guys, I, I love you. Actually, I actually like the asymmetry you bought, brought up because I think it makes CJ Stroud kind of even more exceptional. Because I think, you know, Brett. A, 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 a top draft pick struggling in their rookie season is not at all unusual. And I don't think it's necessarily, you know, a damning of them because most rookie quarterbacks, most right. top draft picks go to terrible situations, kind of by right. definition of being top draft picks. So what CJ Stroud is doing is this almost more exceptional because as you sort of said, he's kind of succeeding in a situation where we wouldn't necessarily, you know, expect somebody to succeed. Yep. At least right away. Guys, I, I want to jump to Hall of Fame, but I want to give you one quick observation on the way. Ludwig Oberg won his first PGA event this past weekend. Now you might think, what the heck am I telling you this for? Because people think he might be the next big thing. People have been saying that since this summer when the European Ryder Cup took him. He had never appeared in a major, and they drafted him onto the team, and then he played well in the Ryder Cup. 
This is a guy who played his college golf at Texas Tech up here, over here in Lubbock, West Texas. He's from Sweden. He won the golf version of the Heisman, the Ben Hogan, two years in a row. Came out, won on the DP World Tour, won the Ryder, and now has won his first PGA Tour at 24. Oberg, Ludwig Oberg. By the way, who's the only other golfer to win the Ben Hogan two years? So I have two guesses, but I'll go with my first guess. It's, it's Knowing you, it's some Texas guy. So I'm going to go with Jordan Spieth or it's Scotty Scheffler. Um, that's good guess, Eric. That's I'm very guilty of that. But in this case, no. And in fact, you raise an interesting point. To win it two years, you have to play more than you have to play at least two years. And a lot of the best golfers, how many years did Tiger play at Stanford? I think just one. Speed only played one at Texas. Oh, so okay. he couldn't have won it two years. John Rahm, Arizona State. John oh, Rahm. Oh, wow. Won the, won, yeah, it's a good name. Ben Hogan, two years in a row. All right. Keep your eye on Ludwig Oberg. Okay, fellas, Major League Baseball, Hall of Fame. What's going on? We got a lot of ballot. Our ballot is open. And so what are you going to talk about? I mean, we got Chase Utley on the ballot. Adrian Beltre is is the lock of the the group. Yeah, I think he's the only first ballot kind of. I, he should be getting. He should get in on first ballot. Uh, um, know, yeah, I mean, the real crazy. question is whether Andrew Jones is going to make a run. He seems to be getting momentum each year. We have Joe Maurer. You want to t- talk about him? Uh, well, Jesus I, I kind of do want to. I want to talk about catchers. catchers and, I want to talk yeah. about catchers in the Hall of Fame because I, I kind of, I have a vague recollection of around the time Yadier Molina retired. Mm-hmm. You guys, uh, you know, the vibe I got from you guys is like, oh, that guy's a lock from the Hall of Fame. Do you, do you actually mean that? Did you mean that at the time? Am I misremembering? Do you guys think Yadier Moline should be in the Hall of Fame? No. I didn't. I don't make that. Okay, maybe I I guess maybe that just made up in my head. Because I certainly, maybe I'm inferring just from media, because the media certainly has talked about. And I mean, he's been around so long and everything like that. But Joe Maurer, I think, stands out so far above any kind of catcher we've seen for a while. And Buster Posey may be the only one at all competitive. I, I think Maurer... Mauer should maybe be a first ballot. Yeah, I don't know. Mauer, I mean, how we, how many years did he stay at catcher? So, you know, the last few years he was at first base. Um, it's a tricky business because catcher is like such a sacrificial lamb as a position. I mean, you, you get beat up and it's hard to maintain serious offensive production. What's, what's interesting is, you know, I'm looking at the link that uh, Shane shared with us. On war, he's up there. There's no question about yeah. it. He's in Hall of Fame. I mean, he's in right in between Yogi Berra and Bill Dickey. That puts you in the Hall of Fame. Let's be yeah. clear about that. On traditional metrics, which a lot of people also vote on, he's got 143 home runs, 923 RBIs. So that's sounding a little bit low. By um, catcher standards? Yeah. Even for, oh, I'm just comparing. Even for Hall catchers, of catchers in the Hall of yeah. Fame. Catchers yeah. even. Like, yeah. Yeah. you look at the, all the other ones around him, Shane, they all have, you know, these are three. Yeah, no, no, no. And I think Posey's going to be the same situation because both of them basically had incredible careers, peak peak performance, no doubt, Hall of Famers. But, you know, the, maybe their lack of longevity compared to somebody like a Yadier Molina or like, you know, you know Yogi Berra of, of yesteryear, uh, perhaps that does kind of hurt them enough. I, I think both those guys will get into the Hall Either of way, Fame. I would be, I would, let me just say the fun. He would not by far be the worst Hall of Famer. He wouldn't even be the worst Hall of Famer I've seen inducted. Person in person, if Joe Maurer goes to the Hall of Fame. Hey, quick question, guys. Are there team effects? Setting aside the Yankees, for example, are there team effects? Do people look around and say, you know, we don't have enough twins in the Hall of Fame, maybe and give Maurer a bump? Is that a thing or oh, not? A thing? 
That's not a thing. It's At least not, not what I know. If anything, it might be the opposite, right, Adi, because of the familiarity of the writers. So yeah. there could be a negative effect by just region of the country. And yeah, I've that. sort of seen, I, I think when you're actually like, so somebody like Jorge Posada, I don't think his numbers really mean Hall of Fame, but I feel he never even sniffed a Hall of Fame discussion in part because he was on a team with so many amazing players. So I think sometimes if you're like kind of, you know, maybe, you, you know, like a Jorge Posada with that same stat line on, you know, where he was one of the standout people carrying his team might have been a different uh, narrative, at least in the media's mind. That's almost a most valuable player argument. I mean, yeah, should, is I, that kind of a minor? Is that like a third, a tertiary? And I mean, guess what writers think about with the Hall of Fame MVP? You know, how many MVPs is person? And just I mean, one, like, one last plug for a player. I see no reason why Billy Wagner shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. He was the best closer in baseball, or one of the top closers for a while. I mean, he's on the ballot. I don't think he should get in now, but he should get in eventually, according to me. I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna laugh at your one last thing because this ballot's gonna be open for a while. I'm pretty sure we're going to be coming back to one last thing for today. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, that has been Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM with the whole crew. Audie Weiner's here from points way north. Shane Jensen from points even further east. Eric Bradlow from very familiar points, very central to Wharton. And Cade from points southwest. Many thanks for the crew here. For Maddie Dats, the boss man, Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man, keeps us on the straight and narrow. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.